And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the Daikaiju Kitty Classic, uh, Gamera vs. Guren, as well as issue number three of Godzilla from Marvel Comics. We've got a great show for you today, and uh, we're going to jump right into it because uh, I'm really late with this episode. I won't get into the details because you know what they say. When a podcaster says he that they are going to podcast more, that's when you know they're lying. So let's just get right into the news, and there's quite a bit of news this time around. Uh, first is the official trailer for Shin Gojira, known here in the States as Godzilla Resurgence, has dropped, and this shows the uh, very creepy, almost zombie-like uh, Godzilla attacking Tokyo and being, uh, you know, resisted by the uh, JSDF. Thematically reminds me quite a lot of uh, Return of Godzilla, a.k.a. Godzilla 1984, a.k.a. Godzilla 1985, which we'll talk about in a moment. It looks really cool. This is, again, from the same team that did the uh, live-action Attack on Titan film. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to this. We don't have a lot of information right now other than it's Japanese release information. So as far as when it's going to make its way over here to the States, what format, will it play in theaters, will it just go direct to uh, home media, we don't know. Um, so right now we're just left with speculation. Oddly, a lot of people seem really kind of put off by the fact that Godzilla has a really long tail. Um, that doesn't really bother me. I think he looks fantastic. I love his little tiny, almost T-Rex-like arms. Again, the little arms kind of reminding me of uh, Godzilla 1984. Uh, so very much looking forward to this. I I'm More information on this as it develops, because like I said, they released the trailer, but we don't have a ton of information uh, about the film yet at this point. So I'm assuming that once information starts rolling in, your traditional uh, Daikaiju news outlets, you know... Um, Sci-Fi Japan and so forth, they're going to really start picking this up, and you'll see this all over. In similar news, the trailer for the new Gamera film due at the end of the year also dropped. And what's interesting about this is that, despite the fact that this is ostensibly a, a new continuity and a new direction for Gamera, this really looks like it could theoretically be a sequel to the Heisei Gamera films. Because there is a scene in the trailer with him fighting off the flock of Gauss, which, if you recall, is the final scene in Gamera 3, The Awakening of Eris. In fact, the, one of the early titles for that film is Incomplete Struggle, and it was called Incomplete Struggle because it doesn't show the full end with the fight against the Gauss. So, this also looks really cool. I like that there's a, uh, it starts out with a, with a younger character, kind of a nice nod to the Showa Gamera films. The effects look fantastic. Uh, it's going to be a good year for Daikaiju fans once again, I really think so. Um, so, uh, more, again, not a lot of information. You can go find both of those trailers on YouTube uh, easily enough. And, uh, in fact, if I remember, I'll, I'll put links to them in the show notes. But definitely check those out 
it's, uh, like I said, looking good for Daikaiju fans for uh, new versions of some of our favorites this year. I mentioned earlier I was going to talk about the return of Godzilla. Well, Kraken releasing, uh, distributed by Section 23 Films, you'll remember they did uh, DVD and Blu-ray releases of Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, and Godzilla vs. Gigan a couple years back. Well, they have officially announced the return of Godzilla being released on DVD and Blu-ray. The street date is September 13th, 2016. This is the first time that this film has ever been available legally here in the United States. It could, it does contain an English uh, language track. It is not a release of Godzilla 1985. So if you want to see Raymond Burr and Dr. Pepper ads, um, you're out of luck. You're going to have to you know, either track down a boot or get the old VHS. Um, but... I'm a big fan of Godzilla 1985. I watched that movie a lot when I was a kid, and that was the first new Godzilla movie when you know that came out during my lifetime. That said, Return of Godzilla is superior in pretty much every respect. So we're getting the better film here. I would have obviously really liked to get an official release of Godzilla 1985, but I do. I'm pretty sure I still have my VHS, and if nothing else, I know I have a boot of it, so I can watch it. But to get an official release. Of, uh, of Return of Godzilla. This is a, a big deal. This is a very big release for G fans. Uh, list price is $14.98 for the Blu-ray, $9.98 for the DVD. Of course, uh, you should be able at the time this is released, uh, get this on Amazon or pre-order. Uh, if you do order through Amazon, of course, use the Two True Freaks link there and uh, head on over to Amazon to do your pre-order. I'm very excited for this. Uh, as I said, I've, I've got a boot of it. It's a really good movie, but I'm excited to get an official release. July 9th sees the de- debut on TV Tokyo of Ultraman Orb. This is the follow-up series to Ultraman X, which ended earlier in the year. Ultraman Orb will have multiple forms, which uh, is pretty typical nowadays for most tokusatsu shows. But what's interesting about this is that it does it, the forms will borrow elements from previous Ultraman, but not just one, they'll be combined. So he might have, say, Taro and... Uh, Tiga elements from both of them combined into one uh, in, into one form. So this looks pretty neat. I'm assuming this will be picked up for simulcast, but there's been no information released as of this recording. Uh, hopefully it'll be like I said get picked up. Uh, I really enjoyed watching Ultraman X on Crunchyroll, and I've been working my way through Ultraman Leo on Crunchyroll, and they've got a, a decent amount of Showa and Heisei Ultraman stuff on there. So I can only assume it'll get picked up. But until that time, we're going to have to just wait and see. Unfortunately, it remains that Ultraman shows are not fan-subbed with the regularity of the Kamen Rider or Super Sentai shows. So if it's not picked up on a simulcast, then it's going to probably be a while before we see it. And hat tip to Sci-Fi Japan for this information. And in comic news, Island 731 uh, by Jeremy Robinson and Kane Gilmore with art by Jeff Zornow is being released by American Gothic Press. The first issue debuts in August. This is a follow-up to the, uh, as of this recording, issue number five has been released of Project Nemesis. This is part of Jeremy Robinson's uh, Daikaiju novels, uh, all of which eventually do tie together, is my understanding. I've, I've read Project Nemesis. It was fantastic. I'm really enjoying the uh, comics adaption as well, and I can't wait to read Project 731, I want to get all these books. I'm just way behind on my reading at the moment. You know, having a job and a wife and kids will do that. You might have heard this from some podcasters over the years. Uh, but hap tip to American Gothic Press. They uh, sent out a press release that I saw for this. I'm very excited for this. Uh, you know, one thing about Project Nemesis is that I'd read the book before 
I read the comics adaptation, so I was kind of looking at it from it as an adaptation, whereas I'm not going to be able to read Project 731, uh, most likely, before I get the comics uh, adaptation of it. So it'll be a little bit, it'll be like an original story, and then I can go back and compare it to the, the book, kind of do it the other way around. So I think that's pretty cool. And in breaking news, just released yesterday as I'm recording this, John Boyega, probably best known to everybody out there as Finn from The Force Awakens, the latest Star Wars film, has been cast in Pacific Rim 2. Now, we have no information on who he will be playing. One assumes he'll be playing human. Just throwing that out there. Uh, but an actual official bit of casting for Pacific Rim 2 has me very excited. Um, you know, I, I had said when Pacific Rim came out that I expected there to be a Pacific Rim 2, but who knows Who knows how long it would take. Uh, the specific comparison, in my mind, was Hellboy and Hellboy 2. You know, it took many years for Hellboy 2 to be, for Del Toro to line up everything he wanted to do and, you know, raise them, you know, get his money together and all that. So I'm, I was expecting a, a decent break between Pacific Rim and Pacific Rim 2. Luckily, I think Pacific Rim is a fantastic film, which bears repeated viewing, so that doesn't bother me. Uh, but cool to see Boyega continuing to do his uh, genre work. I liked him as Finn. I thought he added a lot of humor uh, to the film, as well as uh, some pathos. You know, it's it's interesting when you, you think about Finn, you think about him more as a comedy character. But when you look down to it, he's got some really solid motivations. And Boyega does a really good job with the stuff he's given. So I think he'll be a good fit into the Pacific Rim universe. And uh, just glad to see more, uh, more news on Pacific Rim 2 coming down the pike. Uh, that's all the news I have. If you have any Daikaiju-related news that you would like uh, to share, go ahead and send an email to earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I will make sure to get that news disseminated out. All right, uh, we are going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we are going to get into the first of not one, but two episodes of Ultraman that we are going to be talking about today. So hang tight, and we'll be right back. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 12, is entitled Oil SOS, The Appearance of Oil Monster Pestar, and originally aired on October 9th, 1966, on TBS. And again, in this context, TBS is not the Turner Broadcasting Station, it is the Tokyo Broadcasting System, as TBS, or WTBS, was not a thing back in the 60s. At an oil refinery, a drunkard security guard sees a series of flashing lights in the water. Thinking it was a hallucination, he dismisses it until a factory truck bursts into flames, seemingly due to the lights. Dismissed because of his inebriated state, the guard insists 
that he saw a monster come out of the water and make the truck explode. Once the science patrol is notified, they make a connection to a string of disappearances of oil tankers. Called into action to investigate, they soon discover the oil-eating monster Pestar, a sort of giant starfish. They first attempt to lure the monster out of hiding with barrels of oil, but Pestar does not initially take the bait and only starts to eat the oil barrels once the science patrol vehicles are running low on fuel. A miscommunication in the cockpit between the captain and Ide results in a missile being fired at Pestar while he is in the harbor. Provoked and angry, Pestar heads for the oil refinery and sets it ablaze with his shooting jets of flame. The science patrol attacks Pestar again, this time able to incapacitate him with their firepower. With the flames now out of control at the refinery, the science patrol is forced to leave Pestar to deal with the Inferno. Ide, feeling responsible for the fire, rushes into the flames to fight it, eventually passing out from a lack of oxygen. As the Science Patrol members try to fight the, f the fire as well as find Ide, Hayata transforms into Ultraman and ignores Pestar and begins to put out the fire using a water jet spray from his hands. Pestar, however, is not quite finished and attacks Ultraman from behind. Forced into retaliation, Ultraman uses his Specium Ray, killing Pestar, and then returns to extinguishing the flames, averting the disaster. The Science Patrol seems to forgive Ide for his mistake, and acknowledge his bravery in the face of the raging Inferno. Kind of an interesting episode here. It, it sounds on the surface, from and again from that synopsis, uh, that it's you know kind of your typical Monster on the Loose Ultraman episode, but... It's kind of the, there's some interesting elements to this, which I think help the episode stand out. So, so let's get into the notes. Uh, early in the episode, we hear about a Middle Eastern branch. They don't specify where. Um, in the '60s, I would imagine probably in Saudi Arabia, but uh, but not you know they don't say in either the English or Japanese uh, they language track. They don't say specifically, so that's just speculation. But they mention a Middle Eastern branch of the Science Patrol as well as once again the Paris branch of the Science Patrol. Uh, this continues what was established earlier uh, in the series uh, about the Science Patrol's worldwide scope, which I like. You know, one of the you know, legitimate criticisms you get of the Daikaiju genre is, oh, all these giant monsters always just attack Japan. <laughs> well, here, okay, we're specifically following the one in Japan, and that, you know, the Science Patrol is having other adventures around the world, but this one follows specifically the Japanese one. So I thought that was a, a nice world-building element little throwaway line, but, you know, it, 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 it works. Because Pestar is a water monster, we get several scenes of the water roiling and burbling up when he's coming to the surface. This is, of course, a classic Daikaiju trope, made famous in the Godzilla series, but reused a lot by Tsuburaya and his crew in the Ultraman series. Anytime there was a monster in the water, uh, you'd know that once the water started bubbling, that the good stuff was about to go down. Uh, speaking of monsters in the water, Pestar is a two-man suit. The first, uh, not the first two-man suit we've seen, but a, kind of the first of this style that we've seen in Ultraman. It's very creative for the era because it's the two guys in the suit are standing next to each other. Uh, and then almost like uh, like a three-legged race kind of deal because it's, you know, he's he's got like three points on the bottom and then two arms and then two points on the top. So you can kind of tell that it, it's two guys standing next to each other, 
um, from the overall shape. It's a unique look, though, so I'm willing to give it a pass because it's a very creative design. You know, we had seen, uh, like, Dodongo was a two-man suit, and that was like a pantomime horse style, whereas this is a little more interesting. Uh, very floppy. That's part of the problem when you've got the tall heads on, uh, on like, aquatic monsters, is sometimes they get a little floppy. But Pestar is actually really neat, and he's got a little bat head dead center because, you know, we can't just have, I guess, a giant starfish. He's got to be some kind of weird hybrid thing because he's a monster i like pestar he's he's unique um he doesn't show up a whole lot he's not uh, one of the more popular monsters but he's certainly like i said one of the more memorable ones just from his design the refinery set that uh, pestar uh, sets on fire and then we see um kind of takes place the last uh, the last act or so of the show takes place at this refinery it's really nice I mean, I, I'm on industrial sites fairly often for my job. This looks very much like an actual industrial facility. There's a lot of little touches that add authenticity. Uh, on the big uh, tanks, we've got the little ladders that run, um, you know, spiraling up the side, which is how you'd see the ladders running on a tank, in a, uh, on a tank farm, on any type of industrial site. There's handrails on all the elevated platforms. You know, and the, uh, before the refinery is set on fire, there's kind of a loving in a long shot through it where we see a lot of the details on it. And for, again, for a TV show budget, this is really nice miniatures. I really like this. And again, maybe I'm just more prone because, again, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this type of environment, but I think they do a really good job uh, when with this, <coughs> excuse me, with the, the miniatures for the refinery. Now, the helicopter models are a bit less impressive. I've talked about before on this going way back to, like, episode 3, of, uh, of this show, that helicopters, to me, are the hardest miniatures to do properly in a Daikaiju film because uh, helicopters don't move as fast as jets, but they don't move as slow as tanks, if that makes any sense. With a tank, something moving slow, you know, you can overcrank it uh, when you're filming it, and then when you play it at run speed, it'll, it'll look suitably large. So a miniature tank can look good rumbling across the battlefield. Right, and jets because they're moving so fast, you can move them very quickly, and it's believable because okay, it's a jet moving against uh, like a, a fairly large object like a monster. A jet should be zooming past, right? So jets are fairly straightforward. Helicopters though are tough, and they've always been tough, and it's hard to get a really convincing helicopter miniature. Um, and they're they're not really that great here. Uh, they you know they're, they're a little wobbly, which does never helps matters because a helicopter can't really wobble; otherwise, it would spin itself out of control. And they have to have enough de uh, mass to them, heft to them, to, to look suitably like a helicopter, but, you know, not so much that they're bulky. And as I said, the, the helos don't really come off all that well. Uh, one of the interesting um, points about the helicopters here is they, we do get the classic Subaraya helicopter sound effects, which would be heard all throughout the Showa era, into the Heisai era Godzilla films. Um, most memorable to me for uh, their... Uh, Use in Terror of Mechagodzilla. You hear the he the helicopter uh, sound effects quite a lot, especially in the old Vestron video commercial for Terror of Mechagodzilla, which is where I think I probably first heard them. So, Now, uh, the main kind of story driver for the second half is Ide makes a mistake in the cockpit and shoots a missile when he's not supposed to at Pestar. And this enrages Pestar, who then goes ashore and sets the fire. So Ide really causes the fire through his, you know, mistake in the, on, you know, in, in battle. Now, there is no punishment shown for Ide in the episode. 
it ends with them, you know, saying that, you know, you know, kind of cheering him for his bravery in fighting the fire. But one would really have to imagine that there'd have to be disciplinary action against Ide for this mistake, considering the amount of damage that was done to the refinery. I mean, it's just, I mean, a bunch of tanks explode. There's fire everywhere. You know there had to be some personnel injury. And if not that, at least some kind of chemical release from this refinery of all these things exploding. So there had to be some kind of environmental uh, impact. So, I mean, I w- it would not have surprised me if Ide was not in the next episode, but he is. So, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of a hand-waving thing. I can't imagine them letting something like this go in a series today without some kind of follow-up to, uh, you know, either a hearing or something for the character that, that you know, through his direct mistake, caused um, you know all this damage and this disaster at this refinery. Speaking of, there is lots of really, really, really. Speaking of the disaster, there is lots of pyro. There's no other way to describe this. There is flames absolutely everywhere. In this, uh, in the back half of this episode, and they are fantastic. As I said, uh, this great set that they built so lovingly gets absolutely destroyed by fire. Oh, a lot of these, <clears throat> these the, uh, the the tanks and vessels bursting their tops with the flames shooting out the side. It's just, uh, it's just everywhere you look, there's fire. It's absolutely a blast. It's so cool. It's the first time they've really kind of gone almost over the top with the fire effects on Ultraman, but it's a really good effect, and it really comes out well. I'm uh, I know I'm I'm kind of gushing a bit, but the effects in this episode, except for the helicopter, is actually a lot of fun. And the, the pyro, it, it, it kind of takes over the story. So it's not really about Pestar at this point. It's about the fire. So the fire is kind of the major nemesis here. Pestar causes it, but then he's kind of down and out for the count for a while. So it, it's the science patrol coming and, sit and uh, trying to fight the fire, be- and, you know, Captain... Uh, Muramatsu even says, you know, we have to fight this fire to save our reputation because they were the ones that, that caused it. So very cool uh, use of the fire. Now, again, in, uh, you know, again, we're expecting it more to be a monster fight, but here again, they, they're fighting the fire. So I think it's just a very creative kind of turn. You know, it, it turns away from, uh, you know, just, oh, we fight the monster every week. Well, now the monster has caused something. We've got to fix it. So I thought that was a creative touch. And in in that same vein... When Hayata turns into Ultraman, he's not interested in fighting Pestar at all. In fact, he runs right past Pestar until Pestar shoots him in the back. This, you know, just goes to the traditional kind of uh, superhero-y thing. The saving lives is much more important than fighting monsters. Um, and for what, what, again, is still a straight-ahead action episode, I liked having that bit in there. This is something that I talk to, uh, you know, my, my sons about a lot. You know, because we'll, we'll play... Let's play. Uh, we'll play as monsters, and they'll claim to, they'll play as an Ultraman or a Common Rider, and I have to explain. Okay, does Ultraman fight the monsters, or does he help people? He and the answer is always, oh, he helps people, and then he fights monsters. Like that's right. Now sometimes you help people best by fighting monsters, but in this case, putting out the fire was clearly the right thing to do. Now the way that Ultraman puts out the fire is by putting his hands together and shooting a jet of water out of his hands. Now this is a throwback. Way back in hallowed antiquity, somewhere in the teens, I think, um, where I got an email from my good friend, Dr. Bill Robinson. This may have been the first time we actually spoke. 
And Dr. Bill talked about when he was a kid playing Ultraman in the shower by getting the, the water to run down his hands and shoot a jet out like in this episode. So big shout out to Dr. Bill Robinson. Um, you know, I, re- I, I remember getting that email and thinking, well, I just see we all kind of did. We've all used to do that. You know, you put your hands and try to shoot water out like a water gun, but to specifically do it like playing Ultraman, you get a big thumbs up from me, Dr. Bill. So I hope, I hope you enjoyed our coverage and synopsis of the episode here. Uh, in closing solid episode, a bit of a change of pace as Ultraman's big scene is to fight the fires and not the monster. As I said, I would have liked to see more, uh, about E-Day and his ramifications of his mistake. But, you know, you only have so much space in a 30-minute episode, especially one made in 1966. Uh, But, you know, it's an exciting episode. It's a truly impressive amount of fire effects being unleashed on the really nicely uh, constructed sets. So if you just want to, you know, pop in an episode of Ultraman, this is a good choice. It's, uh, you know, it's it's exciting, it's fast-paced, it's got a cool monster, you get some hardware in there, and you get some really nice effects. Uh, of course, you can check us out on Mill Creek DVD set, which is where I watched it from. Um, it also is available for streaming both on Hulu, regular Hulu, don't even need Hulu Plus. And now Ultraman is also available on ShoutFactoryTV.com. Now, ShoutFactory has not released Ultraman, so I'm not sure why they're streaming it, but they are. And uh, it's, a, it's you know, ShoutFactoryTV.com is ad-supported, but it is free. And uh, they also, of course, have Ultra Q and Ultra 7 episodes available for streaming. So you can have yourselves a little Subaraya mini-marathon if you want. So uh, definitely check this one out. Fun episode, cool monster, and fire. Lots and lots of fire. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with the next episode of Ultraman here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman will be right back after these messages. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Willette with a very important safety message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important they've commissioned me to start a podcast to get the word out. Please. Beware of Monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will speak with experts and authors on the subject of monsters. Monsters of literature, of film, of comic books, of video games. Monsters from everywhere. Beware of Monsters. You can find more information 
in your iTunes or podcatcher searches. Beware of monsters. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, destroying all around it in its quest to control the world! Friends, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson. Beware of Monsters.com. Now, back to Ultraman. And we are back on Earth's Destruction Directive. Episode number 14 of Ultraman was entitled The Pearl Oyster Defense Order. The appearance of blowhole monster Gamma Kujira, and originally aired October 16th, 1966, on Tokyo Broadcast System. Out shopping with Ide on their day off, Fuji is dismayed to discover that pearls have become exceptionally rare as the crop has been almost entirely killed off and consumed this year. As a large load of harvested pearls is being moved along a highway, the creature Gama Kujira rises from the depths and attacks the transport truck and begins to feed on the countless pearls that spilled out of it. The science patrol is mobilized and begin a counter-strike but their rockets do little but agitate the pearl-eating monstrosity. As it began to head further out to sea, Gamakujira suddenly released a powerful stream of water from its head, damaging the jet VTOL and forcing it to land. While the patrol is forced to camp out, the beast perches itself on a nearby rock, chewing up the pearls it had gathered. The next day, Gamakujira moves out to collect more pearls, but the jet VTOL has been repaired and joined by a second vehicle. The Science Patrol forces try their attack again, but their rockets still fail. Gamakujira heads for the nearest cities, but the Science Patrol does manage to hold it off and attach tracking balloons to its back, allowing them to keep an eye on it from the sky, even when it goes under the water. Soon the Science Patrol deploys a giant electric net, hoping to trap Gamakujira, but after breaking free, the beast is sent into an even fiercer rage, attacking a party of beach-going sun worshippers and eating all of their pearl jewelry. Nothing in the Science Patrol's arsenal could stop Gamakujira, and worse, its ripping of the electric net had brought down Shin Hayata's craft. While Fuji tries to locate the Hayata, the, force, the Science Patrol continues to battle with Gamakujira, eventually striking it in the back with a very powerful rocket. The rocket lifts its body into the sky, carrying it hundreds of feet into the air, as Hayata transformed into Ultraman. The hero gives chase, and upon reaching the creature, uses his air-body technique, basically ramming into it, on the, on the kaiju. Gamakujira is obliterated and the pearl oyster population quickly begins to recover. Much to Ide's frustration as Fuji once again takes him shopping and makes him carry all of her many packages through the Ginza. Ho! Oh. Yeah. Let's get into the notes. Okay. Fuji describes herself as a woman in the modern times, which apparently means she likes to shop and she loves jewelry. Ladies and gentlemen, the 60s, especially the 60s in Japan. You know, if you think that, uh, you know, gender roles were very clearly defined in the post-war period in the U.S., oh, were they well-defined in Japan. 
you know, much more conservative culture in Japan, even more so than, uh, you know, the post-war period here in the United States, very much so in Japan. So this idea of Fuji loving to go shopping and uh, buy jewelry and being disappointed that she can't buy her jewelry, this is pretty typical. <laughs> Doesn't make it necessarily, you know, good, but it is typical, so... Uh, now, one thing about the shopping scenes that I absolutely love is they shoot on location. So we get to see the Ginza in 1966. There's all these people, all these fashions, all these cars. It looks wonderful. And I, I love little location shots like this. We'd get these occasionally in the Ultra series. We'd get this more often in films, like in the Godzilla series. We'd get them shooting on location a little bit, just little bits here and there, some pickups. Oh, it's great. And you can tell it's, it's, you know, it's shot just kind of one setup and go, just a long shot watching them walk. But man, just, a, you know, a real peek into history here. This was the real thing. You know, this is real life, as we like to say at work. So, uh, very neat. That I really did like. I liked getting a sneak peek, uh, back in time to 1966 on the Gimza just on a regular day. Continuing with the, uh, you know, the women's lib movement here, um, Fuji says that uh, this is a personal because she feels a woman's wrath at all the poop, at all the pearls being destroyed, you know, because clearly women don't care about, you know, oil or, uh, you know, fires at refineries or people being hurt and killed by monsters, only pretty sparkly things that they like to wear on them. That's the only thing they get worked up about. Yeah, women might have been portrayed fairly well over and uh, at Toho, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, there's a lot of. You know, reporter girls or, uh, you know, alien invaders or, you know, femme fatales. Not so much on, on Subaraya TV. On TV, they were still pretty much there, you know, uh, to be, to be the girl. I'm reminded specifically of a scene in Ultra 7 where Anne gets off duty and the first thing she does is go to her, uh, her, uh, bunk and, uh, find her hidden stash of chocolate that she immediately has to eat because all women love eating chocolate and they have to hide it so no one can find their chocolate as everybody knows. I mean, am I right? Am I right? So, anyway. Gamakujira is um, not the best monster design. He's a frog crossed with a whale. So he looks kind of like a whale, but he's got like frog feet and kind of a frog face. Um, but he's got really good character, believe it or not. Um, because, I guess because he's just a big kind of floppy thing, they're able to do a lot with the suit. So, like when he's sleeping... He actually has a lot of character when he's sleeping because he's just, you see the heaving of his big body and kind of the, you know, the snoring a little bit, so. And then when he's roused up, he's like, you know, it's, so they, they make a lot out of what is not the best suit, but they, the effects crew does, they, they get the best that they can out of it, so. And as is typical for this kind of monster, he looks a lot better in the water than on land, which makes a sort of sense. It's one of those things, it's like, oh, you know, they might look awkward on the land, but in the water, they're super fast. Like, that's always how, like, hippopotamuses are described, right? So, I guess for a big, bulky, aquatic uh, creature like Gami Kujira, it makes sense that he would look kind of awkward and stupid on land. But in the water, he, he you know, fits right in. So. Nah, there's a reason why Gami Kujira is not one of the more popular monsters. He doesn't show up a lot. It's not a great design. But considering the rest of the episode he's in, he's probably one of the high points, to be fair. Uh, the Science Patrol tags Gamakujira with the tracking balloons like in Jaws. Uh, shout out to um, producer Paul Spataro. This episode is no Jaws. Just going to leave it at that. Okay, while they're fighting him, at one point they drop an electric net on him. I have a question. Where did that come from? 
we get absolutely no basis for where this weapon came from. It just kind of is there. And it's like, okay. And and it fails, of course, because, you know, electric nets never work. I mean, we all saw Godzilla vs. Mothra from 1964. We know the score. But um, it's I would have liked at least some kind of, you know, oh, we developed this for this. Or we have to go back to, to headquarters to go get this. It's, they suddenly just kind of have it out there. So that was kind of, you know, eh, I understand you got to fit all this stuff in. And there was a lot of scenes of, of you know, of several minutes of downtime scenes with uh, Fuji and Ide shopping that you kind of had to gloss over some stuff. But it kind of hurts the episode when you're watching it, you know, trying to be critical of it. Now, the next scene, this is where, like I said, Gamakujir was one of the highlights. This is the other one. Showa Bikini, girls! Well, mostly it's it's One Piece girls, but, you know, very, very 1960s ladies on the beach. It's like the Japanese equivalent of the movie Shag, if you've ever seen that one. I had not seen Shag until, um, you know, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, made me watch it. So I'm very familiar with the movie Shag. In fact, I own the movie Shag on VHS. But anyway, so yes, all these uh, sunbathing, sun-worshipping Japanese girls, all varying, very conservative one-piece bathing suits, because again, it's 1966, so we don't get the two-piece girls. That would have been in the 70s, but, uh, oh, just, uh, just for the return of Bikini Girls to the Earth Destruction Directive, that alone made me happy to watch this episode. <laughs> uh, continuing again, once more, the women's lip theme, Ide says of Gamakujira, just like a woman, it loves the shine of pearls. Oh, the 60s never change. Oh boy! I mean, I'm not I'm not one to point out kind of you know ridiculous uh, kind of over the top stuff like this because it, it was a sign of the times, but it's so blatant it bludgeons you in this episode with the uh, the the whim the uh, you know the, the kind of casual sexism of the whole thing, and you kind of have to wonder if this is kind of the corporate culture of uh, the Science Patrol or if this is just this crew, and uh, and, and the problem is that Fuji doesn't do anything to fight it. She's not like. She doesn't stand up for herself on it. She kind of just goes along with it and says, yes, it's a woman's wrath that he attacks pearls. Um, one would hope, again, that by the 70s that the, uh, the token female on the team would say something about it, but we're not there yet. So we take it as it is. That's the way we have to do things. You can't rewrite history. Okay, they dropped the pearl bomb on Gamakujira. I have to ask, where did that come from? The electric net, at least I can theoretically understand that maybe they had this for this specific purpose, to drop on a monster. But why a bomb with pearls in it? Why would you have that? It doesn't make any sense. And it goes back to what I said earlier of the kind of glossing over of certain parts of this in order to kind of fit it all into the story. It's not... You know, the, the previous episode was... It was a straightforward episode, but it was it made sense. It had its own internal logic. This one just kind of goes from plot point to plot point. And I really think this was kind of constructed around the idea of a monster that ate pearls. It's not the most, uh, you know, it's not a particularly well put together episode from the detail aspect. Uh, Gama Kajira is killed when they fire him into space by, by shooting the rocket into his back and then Ultraman playing chicken with him. It's a strange one, not gonna lie. And as is typical for any show with an otaku following, this technique has a name, as I said, the air body attack, and it would return. They would use this again. In fact, the idea of strapping a rocket to a monster's back and shooting them into space, that specific idea would get recycled in this very series. So, you know, I, when, you, when you get right down to it, I guess, you know, from uh, Gamera, where they you know, tricked him into a rocket and shot him into space, not that weird of an idea. 
not that weird of an idea in the grand scheme of things, you know. And in the end, Fuji gets her pearls. A whole lot of pearls as the camera lovingly lingers on her showing them off. Um, I mean, it's like pearl necklace, pearl earrings, pearl bracelet, pearl rings, pearl brooch. It's like, come on. Ugh. And and like I said, it's just her smiling, not saying a word with Ide's voiceover, claiming she's just like Gamakujira. Again, thank you, 60s. So, yeah, ultimately, the only thing that saves the end of this is we get another shot of the Ginza. And this time, Ide is comically, of course, carrying all the bags for the many shopping, uh, the, the much shopping. So capitalism that uh, Fuji is uh, going um, here. <coughs> Excuse me. And one has to wonder, maybe this was his punishment for the causing the refinery fire by accidentally firing that missile at Pestar in the last episode. I don't know if that's the intention, but the juxtaposition of him, you know, screwing up and causing this massive refinery fire in one episode, and then the next episode, he's being, uh, you know, used as like a manservant to tote bags around the Ginza by Fuji. You know, it's there. It's there if you want to read it that way. I'm just saying. So, oh boy, this is a strange episode. It's uh, it's brought down by a below-average monster bit too many plot contrivances even for a giant monster show i mean that's saying something and the i mean just over the top sexism <clears throat> as i said it's a product of the time um it's part of the era in which the episode was produced but it's just too much after a while it starts grating on the on you when you're watching it it's just like yeah okay yeah okay i get it you know it's it's not a shiny example of the show for sure um it's all right i mean i it's not it's not one i'd skip over if you're watching the whole series but if you're trying to, you know, show, hey, here's let's watch some Ultraman, it's not going to be one you're going to pick out. You know, there, there are better episodes around it, like immediately around it, so it's 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 not it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's it's I would say probably the least episode we've watched so far of the fourteen. There there've been better episodes and lesser episodes. To me, this is probably the least one of the uh, the first fourteen that we've watched here. So you know, take that as you will. I mean, it's still fun. It's still Ultraman. But, you know, the, the even the Ultraman scenes are not that great because we don't get a real fight between them. You know, we just get kind of the air body attack and that's it. Whereas, you know, even though we didn't get a real fight with Pestar, you know, Ultraman is running around doing stuff, putting up the fire, so it's more exciting and more interesting to watch than this. So, uh, Again, as with the previous episode, you can get this on DVD from Mill Creek. Uh, you can watch it on Hulu. And you can, of course, now watch it on Shout Factory TV. So give it a shot. And, uh, you know, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys... Uh, Enjoy the episode. Maybe the you know, the humor of the uh, stuff with Fuji and stuff was worth it. So please write in. Tell me what you think. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. If anyone has any uh, on this episode or the previous episode as well. So keep those cards and letters coming. As for me, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we will be back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Eons past. A monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But, awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters.
All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to be taking a look at Marvel Comics group Godzilla, King of the Monsters, number four. Godzilla number four was cover dated November 1977, released on or about August 3rd, 1977. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our cover depicts Godzilla tangling with a uh, orange dragon-like monster with a long neck and wings as they are smashing a, uh, looks like a oil tanker or a, you know, a tanker ship of come some kind beneath them out in the waves. Behind them, we see a smoking volcanic island. Copy says, War of the Giants. Don't miss the island of the monsters. The coming of Batragon. Very neat cover. This is the first time that we see Godzilla tangling with another monster on the cover, so very much like this cover. Our writer is Doug Mensch. Our guest penciler is Tom Sutton. Our inker is Tony DiZaniga. Our letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Phil Raish. Editor Archie Goodwin. And our title is Godzilla vs. Batragon. A strange monster that is a fusion between a bat and a dragon, dubbed Batragon, attacks oil tankers off of the Pacific coast. Crippling the ship and spilling the oil out, the attack is short-lived when Godzilla arrives in the two behemoths battle. Batragon's wing is wounded and it flees, with Godzilla in pursuit, followed by a second tanker, stealing the petroleum from the crippled ship, all in the service of Dr. Demonicus. While patrolling with Gabe Jones via helicopter, Dum Dum Duggan checks in on Dr. Takaguchi and his group's progress in the Stark plant where Jimmy Woo says construction is progressing nicely. Meanwhile, Godzilla follows the injured Batragon back to an island in the Aleutians, where the winged beast flies into a volcano, where it then rejoins a bizarre menagerie of monsters caged inside an electronic force field. Inside the island's control center is Dr. Demonicus, who is using a meteor he calls the Life Stone to give life to his monsters, including Batragon. Demonicus has also enslaved the island's native Eskimo population to mine and smelt the meteor to build a ship of the metal to give the madman a flying headquarters. Godzilla lands on the island and begins terrorizing Demonicus's men, their weapons having no effect on the King of the Monsters. Godzilla's fury causes a massive explosion which alerts the shield chopper patrol who quickly responds. Demonicus does not want to waste his creatures fighting Godzilla, but Batragon, itching for a fight, tears through the force field to attack Godzilla again. The battle is swift and brutal, with the big G coming out on top. But there is no rest for the monster, as the shield squadron unleashes a barrage of missiles on him, while Demonicus plots, letting Godzilla and shield fight, and then using his own monsters to defeat the exhausted victor. Next issue, the explosive conclusion, Isle of Lost Monsters. Oh, big step up from last time. This time, folks, I've gotta, gotta be honest with you. I know a lot of people like that Champions issue. I didn't care for it. This, this is more what I'm looking for in a Marvel Godzilla comic. So let's get right into it. Uh, the cover, uh, as I said earlier, shows Godzilla and Batragon tangling while destroying a tanker ship. The people on the boat are in for a whole heap of trouble because one section of the boat is completely upside down and one is sideways. You see people getting thrown off of light bo- lifeboats and you see lifeboats falling. These people are, are, they're, they're, uh, they're boned to use, uh, you know, Bender's line from Futurama. They're absolutely boned. There's no way around it. There's some really nice detail in the water as it's being roiled about and splashed about here with the monsters tussling. 
the sky is blank white, but that's okay. There's a lot going on here, so I kind of kind of let it slide. This would definitely catch the eye of a monster fan back in 1977, I think. You know, Godzilla fighting this, uh, you know, orange dragony monster that's got a clamp down bite on his neck. Years before King Ghidorah did that, I'd like to point out. Uh, but, um, oh, good cover. Definitely a, a step up again of last time with the weird perspective and all that. And a good amount of copy, as I said, it's got, uh, Three different pieces of copy, not counting the little Toho Productions uh, tag that goes above and to the left of the logo. So, very nice cover. Uh, page one is our splash page. And I do want to say that uh, Sutton, um, you can you can tell immediately that it's not Herb Trimpey, but uh, you know, Sutton kind of acquits himself nicely. So, you know, there's no, uh, no real drop-off. This is the only issue that Sutton would um, draw. In fact, it's the only issue that Trimpey doesn't draw a pencil of the entire series. So, but it fits in nicely with the overview of the rest of the series. So, no, um, you know, sometimes you got to fill in, like we did on um, Shogun Warriors. Who did that? I forget who did the fill in, but it really kind of stood out, and the style was really different. Whereas, um, whether it's because of Dizaniga's inks or Sutton, you know, trying to stay with it, it doesn't look so far afield from Trimpey's style that we can't buy it. But anyway. Uh, Batragon's bat features on the splash page are very pronounced. He definitely has a bat nose and bat ears here as we see his face as he is grabbing the tanker, uh, with two of his legs and kind of pulling it up out of the water and capsizing it. I like the details, especially on the wing membranes with the little veins and stuff running through the wing membranes. Very, very nice uh, bit of detail. And he's got his, one of his rear claws is reaching right towards us, the reader. So it's got a, you know, behold my Kirby hand kind of thing. I'm not sure if it was Sutton or Trimby who did the design work on this monster, but it's a very nice original creation. Definitely could see this as a um, Amanda-style marionette monster if this was going to be in a Toho uh, film. But again, as I've always said, one of the advantages of doing a comic is you don't need to worry about whether the monster could work in real life or not. He's a monster in a comic book, so you just have to draw him. So... Um, uh, you know, interesting that Godzilla's not in our splash page. It's Batragon, which I think is cool. It's a change of pace and a good monster design. So we're off to a good start here. Pages two through six, battle. This is the first giant monster skirmish of the series. We saw kind of uh, allusions to them earlier, but this is the first actual giant monster fight. It is short, but it is very well illustrated. I like the fact that we have a difference of size and shape between the monsters. Once more, the freedom of art over physical effects, because Godzilla has a clear size advantage over Batragon, but Batragon is, you know, he's, he's long and wiry with, uh, you know, big bat wings and like a, like a long neck, like a Chinese dragon. So, uh, you don't have to worry about how these two would tangle. You just have them tangle. And the, the fight is, is nasty. Um, you know, uh, at one point, uh, Godzilla gra- kind of grabs him in a bear hug and tries to rip his wing off. Um, Batragon rams into him with his body and kind of grabs into him with his claws. The ship is tossed about like a, uh, like a toy. This is a, a good, good fight. Godzilla's fire is still red. This is going to be a problem for me because his fire is not supposed to be red. Uh, but, uh, that's okay. You know, it's, uh, it is what it is. Now there is one difference here between Sutton and Trimpy, and we see it with Godzilla, that Sutton's Godzilla has a slightly more humanoid face. And by that, I don't mean that it's, you know, squished, you know, not doesn't have a snout or anything, but he's more expressive in the face. Whereas I think Trimpy's Godzilla was purposefully hard to read. You know, because we shouldn't be able to understand what he's thinking. This Godzilla is a bit more uh, expressive. On uh, page three, panel two, 
as Batragon crashes into Godzilla, he has this really kind of pissed off look on his face. Like he's snarling, he's glaring with one eye. You can really see the emotion here. Um, and it, it's a good effect, especially again for combating another monster as opposed to combating S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, which, uh, or the champions as had done in previous issues. So Sutton does, like I said, other, the character looks on model, but Sutton, like I said, he adds that little touch, which I think is a nice touch for, for this sequence especially. Page six, we see, uh, Dr. Demonicus's men. Now this is on, on me because I read Shogun Warriors first. So I screwed the whole reveal up as soon as they show up, you know, oh, it's Dr. Demonicus's guys. This is Demonicus's first appearance. Of course, I didn't read it in that order. So you can blame me, uh, for any spoilers that you got about, uh, Dr. Demonicus here. But, um, you know, it's, it definitely, uh, as I said in Shogun Warriors, Demonicus and his men, they belong in the Marvel Bronze Age. And so here we are. So cool to see the origins here, even if it's, you know, not the most groundbreaking of, uh, first appearances for Demonicus or his crew. Uh, page seven as the shield helicopters, which again look kind of like the helicopters from King Kong Escapes. As they are patrolling, we get a, a sequence of dialogue here between Dum Dum and Gabe Jones. And on panel three, Dum Dum tells uh, Gabe if he wants to go place to if he wants to save the world to go play social worker in Watts or Harlem. Yikes! Just yikes! Can you imagine getting away with saying something like that in a code book nowadays? And I understand there's no such thing as a code book, but still, damn, man, that's harsh. Ugh, let's move on. Turning over now to page 10, we look in on Jimmy Woo and uh, the crew over at Stark Industries. And uh, got to give it to Jimmy. He tries to mack it on Tamara by asking her to go see Star Wars. It's like, go, Woo, you do it, boy. I love it. He says, uh, so we see Dum Dum calling in. Uh, to check on Takaguchi's prog- Takaguchi's progress, and then the next panel we see Wu going. This Star Wars movie is really fun, Tamara. And <laughs> she's like, "Well, I'm going to be extremely busy with Doctor Takaguchi tonight, but it's like, yeah, Jimmy, you're gonna get that. It's like, I I love that. I mean." I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan on the network. I understand that. But I'm still a Star Wars fan. But that's so timely. It's 1977. And he's macking it on Tamara to go to uh, the summer of 1977 at that. To go see Star Wars on a date. And when Marvel was publishing the Star Wars comic, it's great. I love that. Just a little throwaway line. But uh, nice touch by by Doug Mensch there. Especially Wu trying to mack it, which I, I like there. So very very cool and of course um you know dr takaguchi does not appreciate uh tamara flirting with the chinese american guy because he's japanese and you know less said about that probably the better at this point i don't know if that's going to become a recurring subplot i guess we'll find out i most my main takeaway with from this was that's right jimmy woo playa holla 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 moving on page 11 Panel 3 here, as Batragon flies back into the volcano on Demonicus's island, we see glimpses of the other monsters. Now, they are not named in this issue, but they will be. Who am I? We should meet them in the next issue, judging from what they told us. We see one that looks kind of like uh, a moth or an insect. We see one that looks kind of like a worm or a snake. And the other one looks kind of like a reptile. They're hard to tell. They're not really super detailed. But we do see that there are, in fact, other monsters. And that this is not just Demonicus creating one monster, but rather a whole army of them. Which is, uh, um, you know, why not? Again, you're not limited by budget here. You can draw one monster as easily you can draw four monsters on a page, right? So why not have four monsters so that Godzilla can fight all of them? I'm definitely in favor of this. And this is a, a neat, I like the, um, 
just again, the different sizes and styles of these monsters shows that Demonicus is kind of thinking outside the box, which is neat. Uh, page 14, we get our first full look at Dr. Demonicus. And certainly has the look of a supervillain. The difference between his uniform and his lackey's uniform is he gets a cape and he gets horns. So, uh, you know, he's the boss because he's got the horns. It's kind of like, I guess, Gal Ranger, where the, uh, the augs had the, the horns on top. And I doubt many people listening to that will get that reference, but there it is anyway. Um, I like Dr. Demonicus. Purple and blue and white, you know, he's definitely, like I said, definitely belongs in the Bronze Age and his speech pattern belongs in the Bronze Age also. So glad to see him. I, part of me wishes I had read this one first. So I didn't get, you know, so I, I got his actual first appearance instead of doing it backwards with Shogun Warriors. But to be honest, he kind of serves the same purpose. He's the supervillain that fights against the, uh, the, you know, the licensed properties of giants. So, okay. And he's still, you know, he was using, uh, you know, meteorites and stuff in that one. Um, and he had monsters. So here he does kind of the same thing. So, okay. I'm willing to bet he's got, he's got his MO and he's sticking to it. Um, I wonder if Dread Knight gets in him an exchange fashion tips because they look like they go to the same tailor, but that may just be, uh, my, um, my love of Iron Man and, uh, and my appreciation for Dread Knight because I watched the Iron Man cartoon and have my Dread Knight toy upstairs. But, uh, page 16, panel two. After uh, putting down the uh, Eskimo riot uh, when they try to kind of, you know, attack their oppressors for forcing them to work while the rest of them starve and all that, the Demonicus' men open fire with the laser guns and gun down the um, the Eskimo slaves. I mean, that's kind of harsh for a fun monster romp book from, you know, 1977. There's, you know, yeah, we, we've had you know, people in peril and stuff like that. We had the whole thing with... Uh, you know, Seattle under siege and all that, but this is very personal level of violence, especially, uh, you know, gun violence. It's one thing in a superhero book for, or any type of Marvel book really to have guys, you know, engaging in fisticuffs, super powered or otherwise, but gunning down, you know, uh, unarmed people. And it's done off panel. We get, we just see kind of their hands flailing, uh, on the left hand side of the panel and Demonicus pointing and the two guns firing with Zack, Zack as the, uh, sound effect, but it, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was a little surprised to see this. It was, it kind of took me, um, it took me, like I said, by surprise just to, to see this level of violence against, um, you know, unarmed civilians essentially in a Marvel book that is definitely a code book. It's got the code stamp on the cover and everything. But I guess by this point we could kind of get away with it as long as it was kind of shown off panel and not shown in a gruesome way. Uh, but still a little surprising. Now, on the next page, page 17, panel 1, as Godzilla, you know, makes his full landing and goes after Demonicus's men, this look of Godzilla is very trimpy, this panel, with Godzilla in full sumo mode with his uh, arms stretched out and his big, uh, you know, chest and stomach and everything, and we see his legs kind of stomping forward. Uh, the eyes show no emotion, they're just black with the red you know, the uh, the mouth uh, agape as he roars. This looks very much like Trimpy. If you had just taken this page and showed me this page and didn't give me any context, I would have said Herb Trimpy drew this. And, uh, you know, again, I'm there are some folks on this network. I'm going to specifically put over Scott Gardner. I'm going to specifically put over Paul Spataro. Uh, and there are others, too. I'm not meaning to leave anyone out. But that they can look at a page and tell you not only who uh, penciled it, but who inked it. That's their level of you know, knowledge when it comes to this stuff. I'm nowhere near that. But looking at this, the way that Godzilla looks, the way the faces on the Eskimos and stuff look, I would have said Herb Trimpey. Uh, so I guess a good job from Sutton to kind of mimic the style of the book 
And again, part of that may be Dizaniga's inking also, but uh, it, it didn't, it wasn't jarring to get a guest artist on this issue. So, and uh, this sequence is uh, where it, they kind of question whether Godzilla is just attacking in general, whether he's specifically going after Demonicus's men. It's, it, it's ambiguous, and I like that it's not spelled out specifically because we should never really know Godzilla's motivations beyond like attack. You know, we shouldn't know the inner workings of his mind. Um, you know, scenes in Ghidor, the three-headed monster in Godzilla versus Gigan notwithstanding. <laughs> I guess that's more acceptable in a Showa, um, uh, setting than it is, uh, in a more modern setting. But I like that it's left, uh, ambiguous. And I like the line here, whatever it is, kill it! As he breathes fire over all Demonicus's men and wipes them out. Uh, so the nice, nice sequence here of Godzilla just going to town and Demonicus's men and them offering absolutely no resistance because that's right. He's Godzilla. Turning over now to page uh, 23, panel four, as Godzilla climbs up the mountain and looks down into the monster menagerie's cage, we get another look at one other of the monsters, the one who looked vaguely reptilian before, has clearly a, uh, like a pteranodon's head, a long beak filled with, uh, teeth, and then a uh, crest going back off his head. So we get, and we see another shot again of the moth creature kind of in the background, looking forward to seeing these creatures more in the next issue. Uh, the next panel, panel five, Batragon's face now looks a lot longer and less bat-like now. I'm not sure what the difference here uh, between Sutton's approach here and on the splash page. Uh, I actually prefer the more bat-like face from the splash page. This version of Batrigan's face looks a little too Chinese dragon, especially with the long tongue kind of sneaking out. And the, the he's still got the, the ears like a bat and um, the nose like a bat, but I don't know, it's weird. Maybe it's just a perspective, but his face looks like he's got a longer snout instead of a flatter one like a bat. Uh, Batragon is, is, uh, he's cruising for a fight. Monsters tend to want to fight other monsters is one of the general rules of the Daikaiju genre. And it's a trope for a reason because, uh, you know, we want to see monsters fight. I mentioned earlier, Ghidorah the three-headed monster. That's a good example. Godzilla and Rodan have no beef with each other in that movie other than they're two monsters in the same area. So they want to fight. They are drawn to each other to fight each other because they are both so powerful. And uh, if you want to hear about Gator the Three-Headed Monster, set your Wayback Machine to 2011 and go listen to Episode 2 of Earth Destruction Directive, where we covered that film. But anyway, uh, again, nice to see some another peek at some of these monsters as a coming attraction. And uh, can't wait to see uh, what happens uh, once they get released. Turning over now to page 26, again, panel 4, as Batragon is tearing through the energy force field to get to Godzilla. There's a lot going on in this panel because we've got Godzilla kind of uh, looking over the top. We've got Batragon going up through the force field. We've got the sound effects, the automatopoeia of the spack, zap, and sprack of the uh, force field snapping around him. We see the um, the command center behind Batragon. We see the energy kind of crackling around him. Godzilla is roaring and uh, Batragon is shrieking as the two monsters are kind of, you know, roaring towards each other. It's a really a good panel. You can see this. I can visualize this in a cinematic way very easily. You know, you can kind of see how this would be framed and the two monsters kind of crashing towards each other in a, in a film. Um, how this would be shot in a film is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, definitely a really cool page. I really like this one. And again, this is a good-looking book. This one just stands out again for all the, the dynamism in the motion and the action. 
Uh, page 27, as Godzilla and Batragon clash once again, we once more see the size difference, as Batragon is as long, is actually longer than Godzilla is tall, but clearly has a lot less mass than Godzilla as he grabs onto him and is just holding onto the front as they fall down the mountain. Uh, tumbling down the mountain, classic again, well, giant monster trope, but well done here. The fight is even more brutal than the last time, as Batragon is not fully recovered. He does take a bite into Godzilla in panel two, and as they fall down, you can see he's got all four of his claws dug into Godzilla. <clears throat> but in panel four, Godzilla just takes Batragon's head and throws it down into the rock, and all you see is the Jim Aparo-style like burst around the front half of Batragon, and Godzilla with a <clears throat> complete disgusted look in his face again going to uh you know Sutton's use of emotion for Godzilla he looks just disgusted with Batragon like how dare you try to fight me as he just smashes him and that's the end of Batragon right there uh really again short fight but it's kind of like a tease for a, what we will soon will be a big battle royale next time but I really like how this is done you know not every monster should be able to stand up to Godzilla and Batragon though game and wanting to fight is clearly not in the same weight class as the big G turning over now to page 30 um, as the, after smashing his head into the ground, Godzilla then headbutt of doom right into Batragon again, impacting his head into the rocks as he, uh, as he, uh, sends a follow through as he finishes. And then in panel two, he stands triumphant with, um, his, uh, left foot, you know, crushing the middle of Batragon, standing over him and roaring his victory. Very nice little bit of, uh, you know, primal celebration there from Godzilla. Monsters always have to roar their, uh, you know, their their defiance when they win their fight. So, um, and then over on page uh, thirty-one, as the shield helicopters make their attack, um, panel two specifically, the missile attack. I, I said before these helicopters kind of remind me of the helicopters in King Kong Escapes. This sequence is part of it as they just batter him with uh with missiles and other guns and uh, they're you know they're they're good sized helicopters they're not like a you know they because they're sci-fi helicopters they're bigger than your normal type of military chopper so uh nice little sequence here as the helicopters there's only two panels we see the helicopters attacking and then the last panel is Demonicus watching from his control center but a good ending and it's the typical uh, sort of again like Terror of Mechagodzilla you know, let the, let two, let them two fight and then we'll take out whoever the winner is because he'll be exhausted. Much, much better than last issue. Uh, this one seems more like it's part of the ongoing story than the champion's appearance, which was kind of like a side story. Um, finally gets a monster on monster action and Dr. Demonicus, a true villain. Uh, not just, uh, you know, shield chasing around Godzilla. We get an actual third party villain in here, which was really cool. Uh, there's some dated elements. Uh, some dated elements help the story by being amusing, like Star Wars. Others seem to take it a bit too far, like Dum Dum's racial remarks. But overall, really fun issue, fast-paced. I'm super eager to read the next story. As I said, I've been reading these one at a time. I have not been skipping ahead. So I'm, I cannot wait to break out number five and read it for the next episode here. Uh, I, I'm very, very excited for this. This has been a lot of fun. Champions issue was a bit of a downer for me just because it was so kind of silly, but uh, this one kind of got me back on track. So uh, let's. Uh, oh, and uh, I do want to say this has been collected in Essential Godzilla, which is now much easier to find. There was a while when Essential Godzilla was very difficult to find. Now it is somewhat more easy, so you can check it out. The entire series collected in one volume 
That's a pretty good deal where I come from. Uh, let's see what kind of ads we got here. Inside front cover for Pizzazz with that weird picture of, uh, weird drawing of Stan Lee with the red uh, kind of flannel shirt. That always kind of weirded me out. Um, let's see the, uh, uh, the Clark bars. Um, I always think of, of course, you know, heir to the Clark bar fortune. Um, I've never eaten some of these. I mean, I've had Zagnut, but I've never had a Clark bar, Clark mint, Clark coconut, peanut butter log, crunchy peanut butter. I don't know what any of these are. I mean, I see these ads all the time in these old books, and it's like, man, I'd like to try some of those. I like candy, you know, but you can't just, just can't find these nowadays. Zagnut, of course, always makes me think of, uh, of Beetlejuice. Let's see, the Marvel Super School Supplies. Uh, including the, uh, wrist, uh, the wrist radios with, uh, trans wrist radios featuring honest and goodness 3D figures of Captain America and Spider-Man. Uh, Conan shirt. Let's see, uh, Daisy red, ri- uh, rifles. Let's see. Um, oh, we get, uh, subscription ad with Howard the Duck, you know, shilling us for six titles for the price of five, the biggest bargaining comics. And uh, just good to see Howard make an appearance here. Uh, we get a page with four house ads. Each one is a, a long rectangle. On the top is, here come, move over world, here comes the ultimate superhero, the man called Nova. Brought to you by Marvelous Marv Wolfman, our pal Sal Busema, and fearless Frank Giacoya. Below that is Get Ready for the Greatest Fighting Duo of All, Power Man and Iron Fist on sale in mid-September. Very cool. Big Power Man and Iron Fist fan. Of course, I like Luke Cage in general. Teaming with Iron Fist is just gravy on top of it. Heads up, people. Here comes Daredevil, the man without fear. Throw the adventures of the Scarlet Swashbuckler who dwells in eternal darkness on sale every other month. Yep, there was a time when Daredevil was not popular, folks. Iron Man also. Um, it seems hard to believe nowadays, but there was a time when those characters, you couldn't give them away in some some things. And uh, on the bottom, all new, never before revealed, at last it can be told, presenting the untold combat classic featuring the very first earth-shaking class between the Rampaging Hulk and the Savage Submariner. Um, this was the fifth far-flung issue of the Rampaging Hulk, which was a magazine, I want to say. And uh, Hulk and the Submariner, you know, those two uh, fighting, that's that's going to sell me on that magazine. If I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, i got to go get that just to see those two uh, tangle it up. Let's see, bodybuilding course, uh, buy any t-shirt shown for $4, you know, kind of our you know, hodgepodge ad, kind of our standard stuff, Marvel bullpen bulletins. Let's see, they're talking about um, Planet of the Apes. Um, let's see. Talking about, uh, let's see. Oh, the Adaption of the Deep, which I've talked about before. Um, uh, Marvel Classics Comics doing Kidnapped in the Pit and the Pendulum. I have the Pit and the Pendulum. I don't know that I have Kidnapped. Let's see. Talking about Jim Starlin's awesome Avengers Annual, which just stars Captain Marvel and Warlock and Cosmic Chronicles Earth Mightiest Heroes. Epic struggle against the Mad Titan. Thanos. In fact, so epic is this struggle that the second part will be presented in the two-in-one annual on sale in September and involves Spider-Man, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing. So there, you get your Thanos stuff going on here in the late 70s from Jim Starlin. And then we also uh, have a little note here in the yellow cadmium, in the cadmium yellow box here at the bottom. Hate to close this page on a solemn note, but now you've been hit with the hard fact the price of our regular comics has risen to 35 cents and our double-length books have gone up to 60 cents. 
And so they, they go on to explain the ever spiraling costs, ever mounting inflation and so on and so forth. Only thing that's for sure about comics is the prices will continue to rise. That's kind of how it rolls. So you just kind of deal with it as you go. Um, now we do have a hostess ad. This one is Spider-Man in Legal Eagle and goes something like this. Look, Spidey, it's Ralph G. Fake, the criminal lawyer with the power to change himself into Legal Eagle, the monster eagle at will. Legal Eagle stealing the Bill of Rights? That's criminal. Stealing the rights? Wrong. I'm destroying them, you soft humanitarian spider. My next eagle maneuver. <laughs> to take over the Supreme Court. A supreme step in getting my style of criminal law to rule the land. My tingling spider sense tells me that Legal Eagle's after next. The President's Seat. But I know how to settle this case out of court. I'll just leave these here for the fake lawyer eagle to trip over. The White House. I'm on it today. I'll be in it tomorrow. Me, Ralph G. Fake, alias Legal Eagle. And if they don't like it, sue me! Gotta fly. Uh-oh. Look, what's that? Look at those delicious Hostess cupcakes. I must have one. Just one. Ugh, yeah. That creamed filling, that moist devil's food cake. Aha! Back to your true self, fake. Trapped by your false true nature. You're a disgrace to the profession you profess to be a part of. Is there anything genuine about you, fake? Yes. Only one thing. My love for luscious Hostess cupcakes with fudgy icing. For once you tell the truth, fake. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. I'd like to see Legal Eagle make a comeback. Um, I know all these Hostess characters now are part of the Marvel Universe. At least they were before Secret Wars. Who knows what they are nowadays, but why not? You know, maybe he can be the guy who represents all the supervillains when they get brought on trial. You know, Matt Murdock always represents the heroes when they're put on trial. This would be the guy to represent all the bad guys, Ralph G. Fake. Then you could have that idea for free, Marvel. I promise. Uh, let's see. Nothing else. They got the, now we're the real. They got the Dr. Dr. J and, uh, Rick Barry ad for Spalding on the back. Um, good, good issue. I really like this one. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm def, I'm going to go break out number five and <laughs> I didn't do my show prep air quotes up to the mic. I think once we finish this one, because this, this is great stuff. I, I know I'm kind of gushing and this is not necessarily what people want to hear, but you know, I really enjoyed this, uh, I, I was kind of down on the last issue because everyone always talks about it because of how ridiculous it is, but it was a little too ridiculous, whereas this is more in line with what I was hoping to get from the series and more in line with what we got from issues one and two. So I've got high hopes for the, you know, going forward with the series and, and where we go from there. So, all right, I'm going to take a quick break and we will be right back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. Carell, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is, 
and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth-episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville, every eighth Tuesday, only at Two True Freaks. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it is time to do a little bit of... Listener feedback in the form of some emails. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I've also got a few other ways you can get in touch with me, and all of those are contained in the outro to the show. So we've got a few here in the stack today, so let's get right to it. Our first email comes from friend of the show, Jack Bond, and is entitled Subaraya Sinatra Connection. And Jack writes, I watch old movies and watch the credits for familiar character actors or stars when they were young. Tuning into a Frank Sinatra movie, None But the Brave, 1965, about World War II Japanese soldiers and U.S. Marines stranded on the same island, I was surprised to see special effects director Eji Subaraya. Indeed, it is a co-production of Toho Films and Sinatra's Artanus Productions, and the Japanese soldiers are Toho actors, some familiar names and faces acting in the non-Hollywood way of their own 60s films. But what I want to talk about are the special effects. We open and close with a shot of the island in the ocean of the Toho tank with its sky-painted but cement-textured backdrop. We get an aerial dogfight and a tropical storm with waves, mudslides, and wind ripping the roof of a grass hut to show its underlying structure. Is it wrong to find yourself watching a movie and cheering the storm? In all, it made me curious to see other Subaraya war movies. Have any been imported? Have you seen any? Signed, Jack. Uh, Jack, now first off, let me say that I've I've seen None But the Brave, and I remember my father you know, watching the movie, I guess on AMC would have been the channel for that back in the day, and noticing the, you know, the, the, that it looked a lot like a, a, a Toho film and then watching it with him and seeing the same thing. So I'm on the same, same boat with you, so to speak, with None But the Brave. I did a little bit of research. Subaraya did work on several war pictures during, uh, you know, his active period in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. But a lot of them were, if they were imported, they never got really major releases. They were the B pictures on a lot of uh, double features, that kind of thing. And a lot of them are not available. There's, there's very few, actually, that are available today in any type of a home media format rather than possibly hunting down a VHS or something. Uh, some that I, I pulled out was Eagle of the Pacific from 1953. Uh, there was a film called Storm Over the Pacific, which got a release here in the U.S. under the... Uh, the exploitation title, I Bombed Pearl Harbor from 1961. Uh, there was Attack Squadron, a.k.a. Kamikaze from 1963. Finally got a release in a um, relatively limited way here in the East in 1975. 
It was Battle of the Japan Sea from 1970. And Admiral Yamamoto from 1968, parts of that were edited into the film Midway from 1976. And Midway, of course, has Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, and so forth, a lot of big American actors. So footage from that was reused. So there were some of these Subaraya war films that made it over here, but uh, since a lot of them featured storylines involving Japanese uh, soldiers and the Japanese military, I don't know that they were necessarily as palatable to an American audience as they were to the Japanese audience. Uh, so they, a lot of, like I said, a lot of them are not, not just not available. All the ones that I mentioned all were released here in the U.S. and I, they're. Some of them have home video releases. A lot of this information is, is not, it's not really detailed. I guess there's not as much interest in these films, obviously, as, you know, the genre films, the, uh, you know, the science fiction and monster films. So there's just less information about them available. But hey, you know, it's, it's, it's a good point. Always look out for that kind of stuff, especially, uh, during, like I said, during the, the six, the late fifties into the sixties. You never know when you're going to find something like that. So, uh, thank you for the email, Jack, and, uh, keep watching the skies. Now I have another email here from uh, from Jack, and it is entitled "Va Va 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 Varan Va 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 Varan," and we'll get more into that later. Jack writes, "I'm inordinately fond of Varan, basically for two reasons. One, I'm a cheapskate. I got Mysterians in a Tokyo Shock box set of their three Toho movies. I was able to convince myself the price was worth it for the one film. So Varan and Matango were free, which I'll always endear a movie to me." Are you planning to cover Toho's body transformation films like H-Man and Matango? I haven't watched it yet, but I can tell by the pictures in the case that it's going to creep me out. Uh, okay, first off, good on you for getting that Tokyo Shock box set. I tried to get it. I could never find it to buy it. Uh, I wanted to get it because get those the three of those are a great set, uh, especially for the price that they were asking back then. It was just impossible to find for me. Um, I do intend on covering the body transformation slash mutant films as they're called, which is, you know, the H-Man, Matango, the Human Vapor. If I could ever find a copy of Secret of the Telegion, I'd cover that one too. Uh, they'll, they'll probably be Gaidens just because they're not giant monsters, but yes, I do intend to cover them. Matango is, uh, is one of the best films Toho ever made. It got saddled with that ridiculous Attack of the Mushroom People title uh, here in the U.S., but it's it's a really good film. And what's interesting about Matango is that you can see a lot of the kind of predecessors to what would be now the kind of the staples of J-horror uh, that were codified kind of in the late 90s into the you know, early 2000s. Uh, were, they were doing them back then in the 60s, so it's kind of the same, I guess, cultural uh, aspects that they're tapping into. But yes, I do intend to cover them. Uh, point two, better quadrupedal stance. They seem to take better care not to show that the actor is on his hands and knees with the soles of his feet pointing to the sky. Or maybe it was decropping the Toho scope. Anyway, I can talk myself into believing Varan is taking a splay-legged lizard stance. Ha! It just struck me. Varan is a suit rendition of a Slurposaur, a lizard with horns and fins glued on it, as in the Flash Gordon serial, or 1 million BC, or the CG version written by Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith. I'm glad I started writing this. I like him even better now. Yeah, I, I think you may, I think you may be kind of hitting, hitting the, the nail on the head there. Because of the cropping, we don't see his back legs as often as we do with, uh, Angurus in, uh, Godzilla Raids Again, where it's very clear that he's on his hands and knees pretty much the entire time he's on four legs. I suspect that's one of the reasons why Angurus sometimes will stand up on his rear legs, is to, you know, not, uh, you know, just have something that, that's not on his hands and knees. Um, 
<clears throat> and that's a good point also that, you know, it, he does look m- r- somewhat believable, quadrupedal. So, uh, yeah, I can, I can see that. The idea about the, the, uh, the Slurposaurus, as you call them, the lizards with the stuff glued on them, my mind immediately jumped to, of course, uh, besides 1 million BC to the, uh, Irwin Allen version of The Lost World, which featured special effects by Willis O'Brien, but they couldn't afford to get Willis O'Brien to do any stop motion, so they had him, you know, glue stuff on lizards. And then in typical Irwin Allen fashion, he reused that footage, including casting the same actors for an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, because, you know, that's, you talk about being a cheapskate, well, you and Irwin Allen would have been friends then. Uh, Jack continues, so in musical tribute, var var varan, var var varan, var 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 varan, var varan, you stomp Japan, see air and land, you got us rockin' and a rollin', rockin' and a reelin', var varan, var var, var var varan. At this point, the DJ segues into help me Rodan, help, help me Rodan, help me Rodan, help, help me Rodan. Signed, Jack. Who knew we had such talented songwriters listening to Earth Destruction Directive? You know, first I, you know, butcher the classics of Paul Williams when, uh, when I'm doing the Frogs episode, and now this. It's <laughs> Thank you very much for writing in and bringing a smile to my face with that song. I always love a ridiculous song parody, so good job, Jack. And uh, you keep uh, keep digging on Veron. We'll find a way to, to fit him in there if I can. The problem is he doesn't show up a lot, you know. Uh, he's in there and Destroy All Monsters briefly. Uh, and that's about it, but, uh, yeah, you know, hey, everybody, everybody has monsters that they like, and that's one of the great things about, I've always, I've always said, uh, one of the, the universal truth of pro wrestling is that you can, uh, you can cheer whoever the heck you want to, and that universal truth carries over to anything with a large number of characters present, be it, you know, superheroes or, um, you know, universes like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, and it carries over to giant monsters. You can like whatever monster you like, and no one can say boo about it because everybody likes who they like. So thank you very much for writing it. Our next email comes from Ben Avery and is entitled Various and Sundry. And Ben writes, Hello, brother kaiju fan. Always a joy for me to turn on my podcast app and see a new Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, I'll try to get them out more often, Ben, but reference my comments from earlier in the show when a podcaster says they're going to get the show out more often. I love the format with the movie comic thing going on, and the episode devoted to Godzilla number one was a real treat. It is fun fun for me to actually hear someone else do their take on the Big G's Marvel Adventures. Godzilla King of the Monsters is an essential edition that I purchased when it first came out, and is a treasured volume in my collection. Not because of collectible worth, Nothing in my collection really has any collectible worth, and this is no exception. My copy is beaten and read by me and my son. No, it's treasured because it's so much fun. I'm doing another read-through of Godzilla King of the Monsters right now for my podcast, The Conk Book Time Machine. In that podcast, I am reading through all the various, <coughs> excuse me, all the various Marvel licensed comics published during the Star Wars period from 1977 to 1986, and this is the reason I have a bunch of Earth Destruction Directive episodes where I've only listened to half the episode. Shogun Warriors is one of the licensed Marvel sci-fi books, but I haven't hit that point in time yet. I can't wait to get to those books so I can read them and then listen to your own analysis. Um, I'm going to jump out right here for a minute. First off, hey, good on you reading Essential Godzilla with you and your son. Uh, my my oldest, uh, he is, him and his brother... I've started getting into comics, and I keep a box of kids' comics in my room for them to read. Uh, but I think it's only a matter of time before he starts getting into more, you know, Marvel 
and DC stuff. And it's going to be, you know, bronze and silver age stuff. I think that he's going to be cutting his teeth on. So, uh, I think it's only a matter of time before my boy will be uh, digging into, uh, some Marvel Godzilla himself. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, comic book time machine covering those license books is a lot of fun because there's a lot of them that some people have forgotten about. And Shogun Warriors was one of those, you know, I, I don't think I had ever heard of Marvel doing a Shogun Warriors book until I found Shogun Warriors number one at a show and then, you know, did the research. And, and you know, it's, it's one of those books that, you know, people remember Star Wars. They remember Battlestar Galactica. You know, they'll remember, uh, you know, stuff like Micronauts and ROM, G.I. Joe and Transformers, you know, Indiana Jones. But there's a lot of other ones in there that, you know, people just kind of, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that now. I, don't think I, I think I had one or two of those, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I covering that stuff is, is a lot of fun. So let's and and I I do hope that my episodes that you haven't listened to the back halves of hold up <laughs> when you get to uh, your own reading of uh, Shogun Warriors. Uh, ben continues. Anyway, another reason that Godzilla has become such a fun read for me is recently is my other podcast. Welcome to Level Seven, a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. When I first read Godzilla King of the Monsters, I was aware of Shield but not a huge fan. Now, because of the movies and the TV shows, including Agent Carter, it's even more fun for me. Duggan is a favorite character from Captain America and Agent Carter, and the dropping helicarriers in Godzilla add another element of connection to the MCU. That's a good point. Uh, I, I think I said, I may have said that last ep- last episode, is that, you know, they make a big deal to dropping helicarriers. Well, they did it first here in Godzilla, so. That brings me to another thing I wanted to comment on from your coverage of Godzilla issue number three. You said you were the only person reading Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. You're not. My Welcome to Level 7 co-host Daniel and I are both reading it. We cover S.H.I.E.L.D.-related comic books on some of our episodes, and we are both enjoying Howling Commandos. Of course, it's been canceled, so who knows where Duggan is going to show up next. Yeah, you know, it's I, I, did, a, I did a little bit of research a couple of years ago, and I found that there was something like tr- more than 20 books that... I was reading from Marvel that they canceled within two years of their publication. And the only reason that I had to go out to two years was that new Excalibur lasted two years. And, but if you cut it down to one year, it's, it's, it's double, it's double digit books that I was reading and really enjoying that Marvel canceled, you know, within a year of their public of beginning publication. And, and now I can add Alan Commandos a shield onto that list, which is, is really, really kind of disappointing because it was a fun book, a great concept. There's lots of monsters for the Marvel guys to draw on, and there was a lot. It seemed like there was a lot of subplots and started stuff starting to percolate. But then, you know, it doesn't have Deadpool or an alternate universe version of Gwen Stacy in it, so cancel it. You know, that's pretty much the Marvel method nowadays. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely amazed how Marvel, you know, that in one hand they've got the most diverse lineup I've seen of char- different characters having their own books, but then on the other hand they've got page after page after page of Deadpool, Gwen Stacy, and Deadpool slash Gwen Stacy mashups. And it's like, ugh, I just, I, I, reading the solicits for Marvel is depressing because I literally get like, I, there's I, Iron Man, you know, International Iron Man, Power Man and Iron Fist. And who knows how long Power Man and Iron Fist is going to last. And, you know, the Iron Man books, it's kind of tempered because they're written by Bendis. So they're okay, but it's like, wow, this could be so much better. If it wasn't written by Brian Michael Bendis, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Ben continues, side note, did you read the original Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. book that featured monster characters? 
I read it as it came out, but I've been having a hard time getting into it for a reread. I've read a few issues of that. Um, Professor Allen of the Quarterbin Podcast over on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network sent me a copy of issue number one, and I picked a few others up out of uh, Cheapy Bins. Yeah, uh, I missed it the first time around. I'm I'm not really too upset about it. It's, a, again, good concept, but not not the best execution. Uh, ben continues, now on to the biggest reason I'm sending you this massive missive, your coverage of issue number three. You were not very pumped, it seems, about seeing Hercules take on Godzilla, and I want to be clear as I say this. This issue is not great. I have problems with the story and how things go down, but how Godzilla goes down, I do not have a problem with that. It was a real treat for me to see Hercules flip Godzilla in that splash page. So much fun for me. You would have liked it better if it had been Hulk or another monster, but for me, seeing a Greek demigod show off his strength against Godzilla was a fist-pumping moment, if I pump fists, which I don't. But I would have. That, plus my favorite X-Men character, the Angel, plus another Marvel Cinematic Universe character, the Black Widow. It's my favorite issue. I have that issue now, given to me by a friend who heard about my podcast about it, in which I mentioned I would be interested to see it in full four-color glory, and there was part of me that liked to frame that splash page on the wall. Well, you know, that's that's one of the things I always say. You know, the, the philosophy that I live my life by is a line from my favorite film, which is Phantom of the Paradise by Brian De Palma. And the character in that film, uh, Philbin, is talking to the uh, songwriter and composer Winslow Leach, and he says, look, a song is a song. You either dig it or you don't. And I apply this to all things when it comes to media that we consume. You either dig it or you don't. It is what it is. You know, and, and by you liking something and me not liking something, that doesn't mean that we have to be competitive with each other. It just means that you liked it more than I did. And the thing for me about the Hercules thing is that Godzilla, you know, monsters exist in their own kind of their own kind of envelope, so to speak. And giant robots can coexist with them. The idea of a demigod and monster and a Japanese monster to me doesn't work. You know, that's just me. I have no problem with, with Hercules if he was fighting the Hydra or, you know, um, you know I, I don't know, the, the Kraken or something else from Greek mythology. You know, Cerberus, you know, the original dog of hell. Uh, but uh, the scene with Godzilla, to me, that's, that's a bridge too far. And it, and it put this, and the thing is, I did, but I didn't also, like it put putting over Hercules on Godzilla in Godzilla's own book. You know, it's like, well, you know, he's a monster, but ultimately these, the god characters are stronger. So, like, if Thor shows up, is Thor going to be able to pound Godzilla with his hammer? You know, if this was the, the 2000s, would Ares be able to, to, to go toe-to-toe with Godzilla? You know, to me, it, it almost harkens back to, what is it, Silver Surfer number four, with the Silver Surfer and, and Thor on the cover. And traditionally, in the Silver Age Marvel, the god characters were top of the heap. You know, Thor and Hercules were, they were the strongest. And so Silver Surfer needed Loki's magic to pump him up to go toe-to-toe with Thor, whereas by the post-Starlin era into the 80s and into the 90s, the cosmic characters were considered top of the heap, and Surfer could routinely, you know, go toe-to-toe with somebody like Thor. So, to me, in, in his own book, Godzilla should be put over more, and, you know... To, to give credit where it's due, Mensch does a good job of showing that while Hercules was strong enough to do it, it wasn't exactly a good move, and it didn't really do much except piss Godzilla off and cause lots of collateral damage. Yeah, I don't know, like I said, I, I still would have preferred it to be another monster, but that's just that's just me. And uh, I'm glad you appreciate it, and I do, I gotta admit, I do like 
the other characters being in there. Uh, I'm not, uh, I mean, I like Black Widow from her time in Avengers. I'm, I'm more familiar with her, um, believe it or not, from her time in the Avengers in like the 90s. That's mostly where a lot of my Black Widow stuff after her time being a villainess in, in Tales of Suspense for Iron Man. But I do like seeing the Angel and the Iceman because I'm a very big fan of the original X-Men. In fact, I was just saying this to my wife because um, around the time of recording this, we saw X-Men Apocalypse, and I said that Fox has once again managed to produce an X-Men film with all, without all five of the original X-Men appearing on screen together. That's actually never happened in any of the Fox X-Men films. Only one of them has had all five of them in it, and they did not all appear on screen together. Uh, so just continuing that trend, which is nice. But I'm a, like I said, I'm a big fan of the original X-Men, so seeing the uh, Angel and the Iceman teaming up, even even with the other uh, champions and all that, was a treat. It actually made me want to go track down that champ. They did, there's a champions, I don't know if it's a hardcover or a softcover uh, collection out there, just to read some more of these Bronze Age Iceman and Angel team-up uh, books, even with the other characters in there. So I can, I can appreciate what you're saying. And again, you know, a song is a song. You either dig it or you don't. Uh, ben continues, anyway, I always enjoy you talking about the fun you have watching kaiju movies, and it's also fun when you bring in guests. And I'm even enjoying listening to your Ultraman episodes. Well, Ben, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I used to skip them, but you're talking about episodes I've actually seen these days, and your love for it is infectious. Well, you know, you can, like I said, you can go back and catch them on Hulu or Shout Factory TV, you know? It's, it's only 30 minutes. It's not that big of an investment. Please keep up the good work. As long as covering the big G and other kaiju characters brings you your joy, you can rest assured it's bringing other people joy as well. Thanks for giving your time to share your podcast, Ben. Uh, BenAvery.com, Facebook.com, Ben Avery Storyteller. Well, Ben, thank you very much for writing in, and I would say the same thing. As long as you're enjoying doing your podcast, keep doing them, because, you know, I've always said this is a, a labor of love. None of us are getting paid for this. In fact, we're, you know, we're taking time away from other activities, including being with our families to do this. Uh, I am up really way too early this morning on a Saturday morning to be recording this. Just a little peek behind the curtain, but that's the time that I can to, uh, to do this and still meet, you know, do the other stuff I got to do. So thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate that. And like I said, everybody go check out, um, Welcome to Level 7 and the Comic Book Time Machine. Uh, so some of the fine, fine stuff Ben Avery contributes to. All right, our last email of the day comes from friend of the show and fellow Two True Freak podcaster Tim Elliott. Tim Elliott writes, Earth Destruction Directive Guide number nine. Greetings and salutations, gentlemen. Great show and our eco-terrorist friends, the Frogs. I've only seen this film once years ago, and my memory is I was not too impressed. I thought I would have to be more horror, more scares, more gore. I wanted to see man-eating frogs. I think I was too young to appreciate it. Could Hell Comes to Frogtown be an unofficial sequel to this, you know, when the frogs eventually take over the world? Frogs, you know, Tim, Frogs is not that great a movie. It's mostly just a fun movie to watch, so give it a shot. You might enjoy yourself, even though it's not going to be winning any awards. Hell Comes to Frogtown is a name I've not heard in many, many years, but uh, yes, I suppose this could be considered uh, the prologue to Hell Comes to Frogtown, certainly. My real reason for writing in is because you and Jason spent so much time talking about the Von Erich wrestling family. I grew up in Denton, Texas, and the Von Erichs lived just a few miles south in Shady Shores. My cousin even went to high school with Kerry. I never really followed wrestling when I was young, but I would catch Fritz on Friday Night Wrestling on our local station before the late movie. When I worked at Walmart, Fritz would come in all the time to have his truck serviced, and you would see Kerry and Kevin from time to time at Chili's or Kroger around Denton. I don't follow myself, but why do so many comic book fans I know are also followers of wrestling? 
do wrestlers fill our desire for to see men and women dress up in colorful costumes battling for dominance? Are real-life superheroes and supervillains? Enough of my armchair psychiatry for now. Keep the shows coming, and Luke, you, and Jason Mole have to attend one of the freak fests if we keep the yearly reunion going. Cheers, Tim from Texas. P.S. I'm really digging bots, bugs, and bits. Well, uh, first off, Tim, I will forward. I'm going to forward this email on to my brother, and because I think he'd have some interesting thoughts about the wrestling and comics connection as well. Him, he's uh, been described by several friends of mine and several people we know as the biggest wrestling fan of all time. Uh, you know, we just assume that if we need to see a show, Jay has it, <laughs> and will lend it to us so we can see it. Um, First up, that's really cool about the stuff with the Von Erics about uh, hanging out. You know, about the closest we got is where I grew up. Captain Lou Albano lived, uh, in, you know, around uh, the same area that, that I did. And Captain Lou would actually do a lot of local TV commercials. So we'd see Captain Lou on TV all the time. And we'd see him out, you know, doing his shopping and stuff like that. I'm over here at Stillwater Auto Body at Stillwater Road in Mayapack, New York. Look at my car. An accident, that's right. Doesn't look too good, does it? Well, accidents do happen. My car was a complete wreck and Stillwater Auto Body bought it back better than new. That's right, better than new. Because they are the best. They blow away the competition. Look at this car right now. Body work, detail work, glass work. Stillwater Auto Body, you're number one. I love this car. Woo! I feel so good. Whoa! Um, so that that's you know it's funny because we think about it and we see people like this on TV but they're they're really just normal people also and they got to do their take care of their own business and do their own stuff too so um, as far as the connection between comic book fans and wrestling I think part of it is like you say and if you're especially if you're like a big WWF you know WWE fan the idea of you know the the real life superhero that's kind of I think been Vince McMahon's stock and trade for many years. That's one of the reasons that traditionally the WWF always had the crazy big physiques, you know, the, the giant the heels and the big muscular handsome uh, heroes and all that. I think part of it also is it kind of taps into the same kind of desire for a subculture. Um, you know, one thing that comic book fans and geeks of all shades enjoy doing is having discussions where you can use lingo and terminology that nobody else that doesn't read comics would understand. We can talk about things and use shorthand and, you know, make references to things that quote-unquote norms are not going to understand at all. Wrestling is the same way. In fact, in many ways, wrestling is worse because wrestling uses terminology that, you know, smart marks know or smarks or net marks or whatever you want to call uh, call ourselves that normal people simply just don't get because they make mean different things. I mean, I say that's a shoot all the time and I have to, you know, sometimes like, what do you mean it's a shoot, you know? Some people just don't make the connection. It's like, oh, he's talking, he means that it's not, it's not a, it's not a work. See, even to explain a shoot, you have to use another, another piece of kayfabe. And even the word kayfabe, (laughs) if you don't know what kayfabe means, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think that's part of it too. It's this idea to belong to some culture that exists and is larger than, than just us, but it's not mainstream. And it's a desire, I think, to appeal to something that's outside of the mainstream. Now, I mean, obviously there is some wrestling that is mainstream. You know, if you say Hulk Hogan or John Cena, you know, most people on the internet nowadays know who you're talking about. But, you know, when you start talking about, uh, you know, use move, na- move names is the big one. Move names and factions and, you know, throwing hand signs and stuff like that. I think it, uh, it starts, again, to appeal to that subculture. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, I think that 
the era of world class like you're talking about it's 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 like you say it's it's unpretentious like comics it's unpretentious traditional superhero comics were unpretentious entertainment they existed to be entertaining and to be easily consumed and enjoyed and the world class era that kind of golden age of 80s wrestling i think was in the same boat you know the world class was not doing uh you know groundbreaking storytelling but they had you know really good guys working both sides working babyface and working heel and that became compelling television and the von erics you know they they were the face of that literally they were the baby faces and they were the face of it so you know i, I think that was a lot of it it's and and I, I think you make a point that you know there is there is that idea of them com- you know, both going for that same sort of good versus evil type of uh, storytelling but there's a reason why good versus evil storytelling is held on for as long as it has is because a lot of people enjoy it you know and uh, not everything needs to be uh, kind of, you know, shifting the paradigm, as we like to say at work, uh, about, uh, you know, how, how we understand reality or stories that never heard before. Sometimes people just want to be entertained, you know? Sometimes you just want to put your money down and be entertained, whether that's, you know, going down to the newsstand and getting some comics or going down to the Sportatorium and watching the, the Von Erichs fight uh, the Freebirds, you know? Uh, but good, good thought provoking stuff. Like I said, I'm going to send this on to my brother. I'm sure he will have some more thoughts on this as well, because uh, get my brother talking about wrestling is fairly easy. So, uh, thank you very much, Tim. Please check out Tim's show, third degree burn, where he and his co-host Brian Hughes, take a look at all things, John Byrne. Uh, all across uh, his uh, comics work and really good stuff. Last couple episodes, I've been talking about some X-Men and Alpha Flight stuff and uh, really been enjoying that. So good stuff. And uh, so check that out. Thank you very much for writing in, Tim. And now we come to the point in the show where we say, what are we going to cover next time? Well, next time we've got uh, a little bit of a treat going on because we have not one but two guests scheduled to come on. I'm not going to say who they are. I'm going to make it a little bit of a surprise. But we're going to be talking about the 2006 Korean film, The Host. Now, this is a very well-regarded giant monster film, the highest-grossing uh, film in South Korean history, and uh, very popular film available uh, here in the States on DVD and Blu-ray. Very excited to talk about this, get some modern stuff that's not just a, uh, you know, the, the, the Millennium series for uh, Godzilla or what have you. So very excited about that. No comic next time. We're going to be focusing on The Host because I've got some guests. Uh, so I hope everyone will uh, come back and check that out. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And until next time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter 
with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. Speaking of, there is lots of... Really? Really? Really?